So today we're going to talk about the conversion of St. Paul and how it relates to our lives as we journey and how we find ourselves within what uh, Martin Luther called the cruciform pattern. Uh, he said that the, Luther said that the subject of theology is uh, the sinful human being and the crucified Savior. And the idea then is how do we fit, how do we fit into that? And so Luther's theology was that we are uh, simultaneously saint and sinner. And so our lives are patterned after the life of Jesus. And the reason why I have the icon of St. Stephen going around and, you know, take your time and just kind of look at it and, and muse on it. The conversion of St. Paul happens with this in the background as we remember, right? So we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 to 19. We'll see how far we get. There's a lot to talk about. When you think about the book of Acts, just listen to and just kind of take note of this because this is great organization for, for those of you who love order, you will love this. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8 reads, and it, mine's the New King James Version this morning. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Acts 1 verse 8 gives you the outline for the book of Acts. Because Acts chapters 1 through 7 deals with the mission to Jerusalem. And then Acts chapters 8 and 9 deal with the church's mission to Judea and Samaria. And then Acts chapters 10 through 28 deal with the mission to the ends of the earth. So you have the conversion of St. Paul in Acts chapter 9, which sets the stage for then the rest of the book of Acts. The conversion of St. Paul is so central to the book of Acts that the, his account is told three times. It's told here in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. It's retold in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 11. And then it's told again in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 18. So it's really important to Luke... Um, who get, allows it to stand three times and it's important to Paul. And it's the story of his life, right? I mean, you, you think about your story and you think about your journey and our journeys are, uh, 
critical to us. We think about them. We think about the road we've been on. We think about where we're going. And we try to process how will the Lord continue to care for us through the things in our past and the things in our present and lead us into the future. So let's read Acts chapter 9 and verses 1 through 19 just to get the context of what's going on here. Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, when you think about this text, so if you think about the text 
in a meditative, prayerful sort of a way. Look, when you, so when you read this text, think about it in terms of yourself. Like you could take, you could take Paul and place yourself into the text, okay? And you think about your journey and where you have been. And this is on par with confession and absolution. Uh, you know, prayerfully considering your life in view of, of Jesus and your road. And, you know, if, you, if you're ever bound up by your sins and, you know, you, the devil torments you and says, you're no good, you know, what are you doing walking with Jesus? Look at yourself, look at what you've done. Um, look at Paul. He was rounding up Christians to have them killed. And non-biblical records say that he actually had a lot of Christians killed. Um, so you can imagine the, the guilt that he had later on in life. I mean, just think, think about it like this, okay? So the church in those days, was, it was young. And so it was relatively small. When he becomes a Christian and he ends up at these house churches and he's gathering around the altar with other Christians, it is most likely that he was gathering around with people who had relatives or friends that he had killed. Imagine that being, being one of those people where you're gathering around the altar and there's Paul with you and you have in your recollection that he killed one of your cousins or a friend or someone that you knew of the faith. I mean, that would be a, a difficult pill to swallow, okay? So, you know, as you prayerfully sort of think about this text, think about all of the background and in between the lines of, of, of what's going on. In verse 1, he's breathing threats and murder. So there's, there's a different way to breathe. And I put on the handout a couple of things that deal with breath. So in Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So the breath of the Lord was a breath of life. But Paul, we are told in verse 1, is breathing threats and murder. Then you have Luther's Catechism, which references John chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So then the apostolic ministry, Jesus breathed on the disciples in very much a similar way as God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. So the apostolic ministry breathes out life, right, through absolution. But Paul is breathing threats and murder. 
But then if you take a, a look here in verse 2, it says, if he found any who are of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Christians were called people of the way before they were called Christians. And so the Greek word is hados, and it's road or way. So if you, if you look at this text, I think, that, I think the English Standard Version reads just a little bit differently. I think it says Saul was going on his way as he was going on his way. So in the text, there's this idea of there's two ways, two roads. Paul's going his way, breathing threats and murder. Christians are going their way, which is the way with the breath of life. And as I talked about last week, Psalm 1 is a great psalm in this regard. Because Psalm 1 talks about, and you don't have to go to it, but you can jot it down and, and look at it this week. But just for those who were not here last Friday, Psalm 1 starts out, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor seats in, sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 deal with the way of righteousness, the road of righteousness. Verses four and five, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. <clears throat> That's the other road or the other way. And then the last verse of Psalm one sums up the two roads. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So two roads, two ways. So Psalm 1 is Im implicit in the Acts 9 text that Paul's going one direction before his conversion. The Christians are going another. One's the breath of death. The other's the breath of life. And as he's going along the road, so it's just like a journey, right? You and I have been on a journey throughout our lives. And, you know, in my case, I was an atheist and had nothing to do with Christianity or church until I was 22 years old. So my road was very crooked. And that's, that's another thing. When you think about road and way, remember John the Baptist? Remember what he said? Make straight the way of the Lord. So there's crooked ways but then there's a straight way. And I'll get more to that as we go through this text. But you think about, so the meditative way, it's like looking, looking into an icon, looking into this narrative, is you see your life and you reflect upon your life. What, what has your life been like? When you think about it, are you troubled by your past? Or do you wish you had done things differently? And the devil uses these things against you. Because, like I told the, the Lady Circle Wednesday, when I was not a Christian, 
and people that were Christians tried to get me to go to their churches, I wanted nothing to do with it. Because I looked at Christians, and this sounds real, and I told them this Wednesday, I said it sounds really harsh and kind of like a terrible thing to say, but I looked at Christians like they weren't normal. And so I didn't want anything to do with Christians. The reason why was I thought that to be a Christian meant you had to be perfect and not do anything wrong. And I had plenty of examples of people I knew that were Christians that did things wrong, so I'm like, I'm out, okay? And so what that did was it created a problem for me in my journey. Well, part of the devil's trick for you is that the devil also tries to tell you you're no good, you... What are you doing being a Christian? But the cruciform pattern is found in the conversion of St. Paul, where you have someone who had righteous anger and thought he was doing the right thing and he was rounding up Christians, but his life was filled with darkness. And what happens to him on this his crooked road comes to bear as with his blindness. And so if you take a look at the second side of the first sheet there, there's all this language of road. So like in Luke's the, the writer of Acts, so he has this, this concept of the hadas, the road, firmly fixed in his mind. So in Luke 9, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And this is programmatic for a life with Jesus. So as we peer into this text, we see that we, we put off what the devil torments us with And we keep following Jesus along his road. And so in verse 3, a light had shone around him from heaven. And John 8, verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we follow Jesus. Job chapter 3 is very interesting. So there is this theme throughout the Bible, which someday I'll, I'll talk about it, but the, the theme in Hebrew is halakha. And, and the halakha theme, halakha is just road in Hebrew. So you have halakha or hadas. But with this theme of road, there's all this language of Roads, paths, a light, feet, walking. So, like this comes up, for example, which which gospel only has the washing of the disciples' feet? John's gospel. And if you ever wonder, like, why is he washing their feet that's only in John's gospel? It has everything to do with 
the preparation of their journey forward. So, you know, and Peter's like, oh, well, then not just my feet, but wash all of me. And he's like, nope, if I wash your feet, it's enough. It's all you need. And, and we're like, what? You know? But that's what it's all about is this journey following Jesus all the way through thick and thin, through good days, through bad days. Okay? So we continue. With, so look at these verses with Job chapter 3. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Job 3.20. And then Job 3.23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in? See, Luther had another theology that he talked about the hiddenness of God and the hiddenness of a Christian. And this, I didn't know Luther had this theology when I was tiptoeing into the faith, but if had I known that, I would have been more open to maybe being a Christian earlier than 22. But the hiddenness of God and the hiddenness of a Christian is that even in spite of our troubles and our failures and our sins or the darkness that swirls about and causes us anxiety, Jesus still loves us and Jesus still redeems us and Jesus will lead, lead us on the road always. The problem with Paul as he's on the road to Damascus is he's not following the way of Jesus. He's going his own direction. He's thinking about the Old Testament in terms of judicial law, in terms of Pharisaical law. But he doesn't see the cross in any of the Old Testament. So the cruciform pattern is central to one's life. Then with verses 4 and 5, without anywhere actually invo invoking the Pauline title of the church as the body of Christ, the book of Acts here describes the risen and ascended Christ as answering the question of Saul, the persecutor of the church, who are you, Lord? With the identification underlying that Pauline title, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting in verse 5, it marks Saul as a successor of those who had tormented Jesus Christ in his passion and marking the church as the successor of Christ in his passion. So think, of, look at this text very carefully, this, this verse. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So in your sufferings, you are not alone your sufferings. So, you know, we would think that Jesus would say, well, you're persecuting my church. What are you doing that for? But no, he says, you're persecuting me. So when you go through trouble, uh, temptations, or the devil is just kicking against you and making life difficult, realize that 
Jesus feels your pain. Because he is so intertwined with you that he, he experiences what you experience. And he knows what you go through. Which is really comforting because he's going to carry you out of it. He's not going to leave you. You know, in, in our suffering, God teaches us. In our trouble, in our anxiety. And he makes us wise. And this is a big part of Paul's theology because later on and in other epistles, he talks about how the things that he has gone through is for the comfort of those around him. So this is really powerful that, that our Lord attends to us. And in fact, like Romans 6, uh, Romans 6 is a baptismal text and Luther uses it in the catechism in the section on baptism. And uh, Paul says, uh, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And the Greek word is so cool for united. The word, so what are the Italians known for in terms of drink? Wine, okay? Makes the heart glad, right? And so wine deals with vine. So what does Paul do in Romans chapter 6? But he says, hey, we're united with Jesus in a death like his, and so we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. The word united in Greek is symphitos, and it literally means to be planted together. So what you do is you picture it, take two vines and plant them side by side, and what will they do? Yeah, they'll grow and intertwine and they'll continue to do that for a long time. And then if you go and you try to separate one from the other, yeah, you'll break them both. You'll kill them both. And so in our baptism, Romans, Romans 6, in our baptism, we are planted together and intertwined with Jesus, and we are like this. And... So this is part of what... So here's what I think. When Paul writes in Romans 6 about baptism, he can't help but think about his conversion in Acts 9. Because he, I'm sure he's reflecting on the fact that, man, when I was going and rounding up Christians... Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And now, here I am, baptized, and now I know what it's like to be intertwined with Jesus and to be inseparable, and so Jesus experiences the same things I experience, but the beautiful thing about it is he comes right in the middle of the road of evil and stops it and turns it. So this is the meditative aspect of Acts chapter 9, is that even in our lives, he comes right in the middle and hits evil head on, and then he redirects. And sometimes it's painful for a time, but then it'll turn and become something beautiful. Something beautiful will come out of it. 
So Origen says, everyone who betrays the disciples of Jesus is reckoned as betraying Jesus himself. And then the venerable Bede, he does not say, why are you persecuting my members, but why are you persecuting me? Because he has been suffering from the wicked ones in his body, which is the church. So then, verses 6 through 8. So go to the third page. What Jesus does in 6 through 8 is he has Paul trembling and what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. They led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He's three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What happens here is you have resurrection language twice. He arose or arise and those are, the, those are words in Greek that are used for resurrection. But it's just the beginning. Because notice what happens with him. He's struck blind, which is, it truly happens to him, but it's also symbolic of his spiritual condition. He can't see Jesus. He, so he can't see the world without looking through the lens of Jesus. He can't really see the world in the proper way. He can't even view himself in the proper way. And he's three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What does that sound like? Yeah, this is the passion of Jesus. So here's Luther's cruciform pattern in the life of Paul. If you're going to be one of mine, you have to have the cruciform pattern firmly implanted upon your life. And early church practices, you see a similar practice sort of come out in the catechumenate where they would go through periods like in some places three years as a catechumen fasting and spiritual preparation. And maybe they used Paul and his situation as, as a kind of a programmatic example. And so it goes on, and you have Ananias who enters the picture. And he represents the apostolic office and the apostolic task. He represents the church. But then in verse 11, look at this. The Lord said to Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So notice, first of all, Paul is praying. So, Fasting, 
praying in the midst of trouble, in the, in the midst of his blindness, okay? So there's something here for us. When you find yourself struggling with faith or you're struggling with something going on in your life, this is a good practice. To spend some time fasting and to spend some time praying, being in scripture and meditating upon it as you petition the Lord to carry you out. He's on a street called Straight. Okay. Here's this Halakha language again. So there's two Hebrew concepts that go together. Okay. One is in Hebrew, sowed. And what it means is secret counsel. And what happens is with this concept is, so basically this concept is just simply this. God comes and reveals his secrets to the prophets. He tells them divine truth. And after he tells them divine truth, then comes this concept called yeshar, which is a straight road. And if you ever remember, like in Isaiah and in the Psalms, in fact, I have scripture here. Um, yeah, like Isaiah 40, verse 3, and I'm going to run out of time. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Okay, John the Baptist becomes that person, right? Um Then Psalm 5, verse 8. Let's see what that says. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. And there's others. Like we could just go on and keep finding passages like this. So what happens is... God comes and reveals his word to the prophets, divine revelation, and then it prepares a straight road. And so there are verses in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, where they'll say like, um, in that day, I will raise up the valleys and make low the hills and make straight a way for the Lord. Okay. So the fact that Paul is on a street called Straight means that his crooked road is now being made straight because Jesus himself has come and revealed himself to Paul. And you could just jot this down, but there is a passage in Amos Amos chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, which is that concept of sowed. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So Amos 3, verse 7, God reveals his secret to the prophets. Yes? Is 
I don't know about that. That's a really good question because I don't like I don't know the background on that one. That was, um, yeah, for. Yeah, the house of Judas. I don't. I don't know. Does anybody have a footnote in their Bible that says anything about that? It, there were Judas was a very common name. Yeah, right. I know it could be, but you know, it's that's one of those things I need to look into a little bit more and see if there's something to that. But that so then as as you kind of look forward then there is and I don't know if I put this on here or not yeah there's this great St. Augustine quote on the back which you can read later but basically it's like this so think about this Jesus comes to Paul himself on the road to Damascus and strikes him blind Jesus could then also just give him his sight back, snap his fingers, say, now you see. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? But Jesus sends him to the church to be healed. And that is very important for everyone. That If we want to find the Lord's healing and his blessing and his forgiveness and his strength, we go to the church. We go to the altar. We go to where the pastor's there. And there's the font. And there's the Eucharist. Yes. I think it's wonderful that it said that the Lord spoke to Ananias. And then later on, Ananias said to Paul, the Lord spoke to me. Yeah. The Lord speaks to his servants. Exactly. Maybe not as audibly as this, but I mean, even today. Yes. He tells us what he wants us to do. Exactly. So what she said was, it's, it's amazing and great that the Lord speaks to Ananias. And then when Ananias speaks to Paul, he says, the Lord spoke to me. So you always see that it's not just only on a human level, but the divine intercedes. And so the text then, go for, verse 15, go for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So there's the cruciform pattern again. But then, he lays his hands upon Paul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he speaks divine things and he blesses him and the scales fall and he can see, but he sees things as they are to be seen. And then he arose and was baptized. And then, after that, in verse 19, now he eats and is strengthened. 
So his time of spiritual trial with his conversion has ended and now he begins to journey. In in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, this is one of the other conversion stories. And I guess that you could start at verse 17 to get the context. He's talking about what Jesus said to him. And he says in verse 17 and then verse 18. And so these are the words of Jesus to Paul. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So in this account then, Paul's experience leads him to the mission of the church where he looks out and there are all those people who are in the same condition as he was in. Now think about that for your life. You go through different things in your life at different times and you struggle. There's times of joy, there's times of peace, there's times of anxiety, there's times of struggle. In your learning, you are becoming wise, divinely wise. And in that wisdom, you are being taught by the Lord about life for yourself, but then it's also then for others around you, up ahead on the journey. And so this is how the church continues to be a blessing for the world outside the doors. And we know what mercy feels like, looks like, smells like, and so then that mercy, it becomes us. And then that mercy then wafts into the nostrils of the people around us. And the Lord's work continues through his grace. And so what's remarkable to me, and this is on the bottom of page three, I just put, in January we have three saints days And I think it's significant the way they have done it because January 24th is St. Timothy, Pastor and Confessor Day. January 25th is the conversion of St. Paul. And then January 26th is St. Titus, Pastor and Confessor. So, you know, he wrote those epistles, first and second Timothy and then Titus. And those two young pastors were beneficiaries of Paul's conversion. And so it's fitting that Paul's conversion is right in between them. But it's also uh, 
kind of an explanation of this text of the conversion. How Paul goes through the cruciform pattern in those three days and he learns then how to help people that were in the same condition so that others will be blessed around him. I scanned the text, but I can't find where Saul's name was changed to Paul. Yeah, it happens a little later. And it literally just like happens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. Uh, but, um, I think it's always wonderful this, that God chose Paul because he was just an excellent scholar. Yeah, Paul was an excellent scholar. And so he was very learned. And so the Lord does amazing things with him. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a very good point. So let's close. Uh, on the back of the handout is the, is the collect for the conversion of St. Paul. Let us pray. Almighty God, you turned the heart of him who persecuted the church. And by his preaching cause the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant us ever to rejoice in the saving light of your gospel and following the example of the Apostle Paul to spread it to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, thank you and have a blessed day.